0: Mark chapter nine, beginning in verse one, it says, and he said to them, assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here and let us make three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah, because he didn't know what to say. So they were greatly afraid and a cloud came and overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son. Hear him. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus themselves with themselves. Now, as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things that they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Then he answered and told them, indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the son of man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come and they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. In Matthew chapter nine, the the, the chapter is going to move quickly through this event that you and I call the transfiguration in verses one through 13 to a restoration in verses 14 through 32. And then a clarification in verses 33 through 50. Remember, in Mark chapter eight, verses 34 through 38, Jesus called the people to himself with his disciples to deny themselves, to pick up their cross, to follow Jesus, that Jesus would suffer and die and rise from the dead. In a real sense, the opening verse of chapter nine really belongs with chapter eight, verses thirty four through thirty eight. In a real sense, it's we're following a journey. Sacrifice selflessness death resurrection eternity glory this is the journey and in one sense in chapter 9 we get a sneak peek into God's kingdom why a sneak peek why coming attractions of a future kingdom The glimpse into the future is going to embolden and strengthen the disciples for the journey ahead. It's also going to remind them that Jesus is the Messiah. In a very real sense, in order for you to understand what it means to exercise selflessness and sacrifice and surrender, you're going to need to see this in light of eternity. The reality is this. Discipleship costs dearly. But the reward is also going to be dear indeed. Sacrifice? Yes. Reward? More, more than you could ever imagine. By the way, are you fascinated by the strange? Are you intrigued? By the supernatural? Does it shock you and surprise you that as close as you are, even closer to the person who's next to you, there's an invisible, eternal kingdom? It's just one small veil away. Look at verse one again. He said to them, assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. The journey up the mountain is going to begin with a prediction. As you know, in the New Testament, when Jesus says assuredly, it means truly. This doesn't mean that the other things weren't true. It just means that he wants to draw particular attention to what he's about to say. So when he says, assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. The prediction or the prophecy assures them that there are people who will see the kingdom with power. And I want you to remember back to chapter eight, verse thirty four, where it says when he called the people to himself with his disciples. Remember, there is still this crowd of people and he's reminding them that they will see the kingdom with power. It's an enigmatic statement and one that we're going to look at a little bit more closely. Then Jesus chooses three men, Peter, James, John, to follow him up the mountain. The prophecy, by the way, seems highly unlikely. What do you mean? Not taste death till they see the kingdom of God with power. The religious leaders understand just how absurd and preposterous the statement seems. In John's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 51 and 52, It says, then then said the Jews to him, the religious leaders to Jesus, now we know that you have a devil. Abraham is dead. The prophets. And you say, if a man keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Think about it. A Jewish rabbi on the outskirts of the empire In a dust bowl. How is this no one going to establish a kingdom? The followers of Jesus will be persecuted. They'll be fed to the lions. They'll be set on fire. Think about it. Jesus has no army. Jesus has no weapons. Jesus has no money. With no army, no weapons, it seems like there's no future. What kind of incredible, crazy talk is this? Well, I'm going to suggest to you that it might mean several things. It might mean some of these things, and it might mean all of these things. It may mean that the disciples will witness the death and the resurrection of Jesus and the rule of reign of Jesus in the hearts of the believer. And we know that's true. Will Jesus go to Jerusalem? Yes. Will he die on a cross? Yes. Will he rise from the dead? Yes. Will there be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit? Yes. Will the very living presence of Jesus and the Spirit live inside of people's hearts? Yes. Will the kingdom expand? Yes. All of that's going to happen. It may mean that the events that are about to take place provide the sneak peek into the future. In other words from verses 2 through 13, when the veil is torn away and there's given a tiny glimpse of the glorified Jesus. Is that true? Yes. It may mean that some believers and followers of Jesus will walk in death rather than life and some will walk in life rather than death. In other words, death in the Bible doesn't always mean what you think it means. Broadly, in the Bible, death has three meanings. Number one, death is the end of life or the termination of life. It's the experience by which we no longer have a conscious interaction with one another. It might be hard for some of you to grasp this, but being alive is very different from being dead. For some of you, you won't understand this until you're dead. And then all of a sudden, you're going to go, being dead's different from being alive. Number two, death is used as an expression or a condition of the unregenerate. That is, those who are not born again. They're described as being dead and trespass and sin. It's the condition of being unresponsive to the Holy Spirit. And number three, death is also the ultimate tragedy which overwhelms the guilty when the guilty stand before God. And they have to give an account of their life. But Jesus, remember, in one sense, he says, for all of those who are born again, all of those who have been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life, and he that believes in me, even if he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me will never die. There's a sense, there's a sense in which every single Christian enters into eternal life the moment that they're born again. You'll never die. So what if Jesus is saying... In part, that physical death isn't the end, but rather the beginning of a new world and a new life and a new kingdom. And in a very real sense, those present would see the son of man coming in the clouds with glory. I'm going to suggest to you that that's exactly what will happen, because Jesus will come for the saints and then Jesus will come with the saints and it says in verse two, now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. Mark says after six days, Luke 29, 928 says, well, it was about eight days. So many people will always say to me, OK, which is it, Pastor? See, this is a contradiction. Who's right and who's wrong? Is Mark right? Is Luke right? Is Luke right? Is Mark right? They're both right. Because about eight days, if there's a tiny beginning of one day and a tiny end of another day, remember any portion of the day is a day. If you said to me, I'll be gone about a week. And you're only gone six days. Are you a liar? If you're gone eight days, are you pushing the envelope of truth? See, this is what is so interesting to me. There are people who are trying to find reasons to not believe the Bible. But I've got to tell you something. I made a decision a long time ago. The Bible is true. The Bible is true in spite of what I may or may not know. Or in spite of what I may or may not be able to explain. So he says after six days he takes Peter, James, and John up to a high mountain. Again, which one? For those of you who have an opportunity to go to Israel, many of you have taken the tour. As you make your way around the great nation, some people will say, well, it's Mount Tabor. As a matter of fact, there is a a church there called the Mount of Transfiguration Church. And um, other scholars suggest that it's Mount Hermon. Was it Hermon or was it Tabor? I don't know. Does it matter? No. What matters? They went to a mountain This really happened. A sneak preview was given. And the Lord Jesus takes Peter, James and John. Why these men? Well, because he hates all the rest of them. No, that's probably not the reason. Why does he take these three men? I'm going to suggest to you it would appear that these men are privy to some of the most extraordinary events in the ministry of Jesus. These are the men that are with Jesus when Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. These are the men who are with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane during this great passion. These are the men who are with them on the Mount of Transfiguration. Why these three men? I'm going to suggest to you that Jesus is preparing them for some unique leadership role within the body of Christ... And the future church. And the important thing for, the, for you is this. Did it ever occur to you that Jesus is calling you and preparing you to come aside with him for special training? For special preparation? You see, I'm going to suggest to you that every once in a while, God will call aside men and women The Lord Jesus will call you. And he will ask you and prepare you to spend more time with him. Now, think for just a moment. Peter is going to occupy a prominent role of leadership in the early church. Peter is going to be the one after Jesus rises from the dead. He's going to speak to both Jew and Gentile how Jesus is the Messiah and how he reconciles people to himself. Our friend James is also going to have a special ministry, and he's going to lead in an entirely different way. He is going to be the first prominent Apostle to suffer and die for Jesus. And so, is it possible that John, his brother, is Outlives all of his contemporaries. He's banished to the island of Patmos where he is given a series of revelations that you and I call the book of revelation at the back of your Bible. And so here is Peter. Here is James. Here is John. And the Lord is preparing them for special ministry. One is going to live longer than all of the rest one is going to die immediately one is going to provide unique and specific leadership and it could very well be that that's exactly what God is going to do with you you mean I might have to become a Christian like like you well what do you mean oh oh God don't tell me I'm gonna have to go to church more than once a week. No, you don't have to go to church more than once a week. You don't have to go to church on Wednesday nights. You don't have to go to church. Going to church isn't what saves you. But it could very well be that you might be the kind of person that God's calling. And and there's something inside of your heart. There's something inside of your soul where you go, Sunday's not enough for me. I want to read my Bible every day, and I want to pray every day, and I want to understand, recognize my gifts, and I want to be used by God every day. And Jesus calls you, and he bids you, and he sets you aside, and you accompany him. And look what it says at the end of verse two. And he was transfigured before them. Suddenly Jesus is changed in a moment. The word transfigured is one that you're gonna, most of you are going to be very familiar with. It's the Greek word metamorpho. Meta, change, morpho, to change into another form. It's a transformation. It it describes a complete and a substantial transformation. It's the word that we use to describe when a worm is transformed into a butterfly. It means to change, but it means to fundamentally change from the inside out. Let me help you. One of the ways of thinking about this word is to think of the word that is opposite metamorphosis. It's masquerade. You know that word. Masquerade. It doesn't mean to change from the inside out. It means to change from the outside in. It means to put on a mask. It means to put on a front. It means to alter your appearance. And why do most people... Masquerade for one of two reasons because they want to have fun or they want entertainment. But some people masquerade because they want to disguise what's on the inside instead of reveal what's on the inside. But the Bible says that there's going to come a time in the not too distant future where all of us will be changed. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where he says we're not all going to die, but some of us are going to be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. The amount of time that it takes for light to reflect off the surface of your eye. Paul writes and he says we're not all going to die, but some of us are going to be changed. We're all going to be changed. He asks and answers the question, Well, what kind of a world are we going to live in and what kind of a body are we going to have? And Paul writes, foolish one. Don't you understand that the seed that is sown in the ground is different from the flower that it produces? He uses the illustration as different as a seed is from the flower that it produces is the difference between the body you have and the body you will one day have. And here is Jesus. Living the great majority of his ministry with his glory veiled. If you were to go back in time and space and you were to follow Jesus on any given day, I think you would be struck by just how ordinary he looked. If you went to his birth, you might think, well, wouldn't he be the baby that glows in the dark and that's how we could find him? (laughs) No, Jesus didn't glow in the dark. The vast majority of the time. The Bible says. He came in humility and he was a man of sorrows and he was acquainted with grief. But one day he'll come in glory. He'll be instantly recognizable. And for some of you, you find yourself in the midst of something that seems extraordinarily ordinary you feel like your life is empty or ordinary your life is dreary and in order for you to understand selflessness and sacrifice and surrender you need a glimpse of what eternity is going to really be like In verse 3 it says his clothes became shining exceedingly white like snow such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. (laughs) The word shining is... The Greek word "stilbo" It's a Greek participle. It means that the shining is active. Uh, let me help you understand. There's a difference when something shines because of reflected light versus a light that's being generated. Some of you might look at the wall in our church and as you see the light reflecting off the surface of the wall, you might see hints and glints of the paint. But if you look to your left or if you look to your right and you see the sconces, you see that the lights are illuminated. There's a light gl- Blowing from within. That's this word, still But here's the other idea. It's a real light. It's a, it's an active light. Here's part of the point. The shining is not an illusion. It's not a dream. It's not a vision. It's not an imagination. They're not on the top of the mountain. And the sun is shining brightly on Jesus' clothes. And just for a moment, just for an instant, they have this sense in which eternity has all of a sudden crept in. And that's that's not what's happening. There's a real transformation that has happened. There's a real glimpse into the future. This isn't to say that the Godhead of Jesus is leaking out or the glory of God, like some rogue radiation from eternity is all of a sudden just sort of leaking out of his being. The scripture says, our Lord Jesus Christ, the king of kings, the Lord of Lords, who alone has immortality dwelling in light, which no man can approach unto whom no man has seen, nor can ever see. It says in first Corinthians chapter six, verse 14 through 16. There is a sense in which there is. There is a glimpse of glory. There's a glimpse of eternity, but it's only a glimpse. It would appear that God allows these three disciples to see on a limited basis the glory of God. In Matthew's gospel, it says his face did shine as the sun. His raiment was white as light. It says in Matthew seventeen two. in Luke's gospel, chapter nine, verse twenty nine, it says the fashion of his countenance was altered. His raiment was white and glistening and every once in a while you come to church and you sit in your chair And you think about your life and you think about the past and you think about the present and you think about your future and you think about your problems and you think about your needs and you think about your necessities. And then all of a sudden you close your eyes and you praise the Lord and you have the tiniest vision of Jesus. You see him like Isaiah high and lifted up and his train fills the temple. And all of a sudden you get just the tiniest glimpse of eternity and you understand that a self-existent, eternal being has your life in this world under control. And you have the tiniest taste of glory. Because in order for you to understand your circumstances now, you're going to, you're going to have to see what eternity is like. And look what it says in verse four. And Elijah appeared with them with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. Now, think about this. Jesus is visited by two saints from the past, Elijah and Moses. It's OK for you to ask yourself the question. Well, why? Why Elijah and Moses? Why not Noah? Why not Adam? Why not Abraham? Some have suggested that Elijah becomes a picture of all the prophets. There's a reason why Elijah is perhaps the most famous prophet. Remember, he's used by God. He is involved with miracles. Um, he'll part waters and an axe head will float and he'll even bring people back to life. Some have suggested that Moses is a type and a picture of the law and the law giver. And so think about it for just a moment. If Elijah is a picture of all the prophets and Moses is a picture of the law, then all of a sudden here is Elijah and Moses with Jesus, not just simply affirming him and talking with him, but strengthening him, because I'm going to suggest to you that Moses and Elijah don't have anything worth listening to as far as Jesus is concerned. Can Moses and Elijah instruct Jesus? No. But guess what Elijah and Moses do? They instruct us about Jesus. And what's the content of their conversation? They were talking with Jesus. What do you suppose they were talking about? Whether or not the Broncos will do okay this season? I suspect not. I suspect that Tim Tebow and the Broncos weren't the topic of conversation. We actually know what they were talking about. If we read in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter nine, verse thirty one, it says that they appeared in glory and they spake of his departure. The Greek word is exodon. We get the word exodus. You know what that means. It means the time of leaving. But in this particular context, it isn't just simply getting up and walking out. He is talking about the departure it says which he would accomplish in Jerusalem the idea in the new testament when it uses that term exodon it means the departure of death paul uses the exact same term in second timothy when he talks about the time of his departure is at hand i want you to think for just a moment here's moses here's elijah they're alive you know, so many people wonder when you die, do you really survive death and in, and in what way do you survive? What is life like? What, what is eternity going to be like? What happens the moment that you close your eyes for the last time and your heart stops pumping blood through your body for the last time? What happens? The Bible says that you exist in the future. You're recognizable in the future. You'll note that both Moses and Elijah are recognizable not only by Jesus, but by the disciples who are watching. Did it ever occur to you again that the transfiguration of Jesus isn't just simply a sneak peek of the future glory and the future kingdom, but all of a sudden both the law and the prophets point to the reality that this Sacrifice is exactly what God has wanted and required all along. And so they strengthen him for the task at hand. Jesus is about to embrace the pain and suffering and the weight of the cross. And Elijah and Moses will bear witness that Jesus is the true Messiah, superior to the prophets, superior to the law. Both men are honoring and ministering to the Messiah because both understand that the prophet and the law point to the Messiah. The old covenant is about to pass away forever. And the new the new covenant. Established forever, William Lane suggests, quote, Moses appears as the representative of the old covenant and the promise now shortly to be fulfilled in the death of Jesus and Elijah as the appointed restorer of all things. The stress on Elijah's presence at the transfiguration indicates the fulfillment of all things has arrived and the transfiguration is the prelude to the passion and Elijah is there to testify to the importance, the ultimate importance of the impending events in the historical sequence, which culminates in consummation. The presence of Elijah and Moses thus have an eschatological significance in the specific sense that they proclaim the coming of the end. It's just fancy way. Way of saying that in the law and in the Moses and in Jesus, you see the fulfillment and the summation of all things. Everything is about to come to a dramatic close. So what purpose does the transfiguration serve in part to strengthen Jesus? What purpose does the transfiguration serve in part to strengthen Peter, James and John? Suffering, surrender, sacrifice, salvation, submission, a resurrection. None of those things are going to be possible. Unless just for a moment the veil is torn away. And you see heaven. And you see eternity. And you understand that the surrender and the sacrifice And the selflessness is just for a moment. It's just for a moment. But there awaits for you a reward. More glorious than you could possibly comprehend. And so, clearly, it's going to reinforce their conviction that Jesus is the Messiah. But they're also going to see glory. Can you imagine? Glory. Peace security, perfection. Who would ever want to come down from that mountain? And clearly there's life after death and clearly there's recognition after death and clearly there's intelligence after death, but not necessarily in life. Read verse five. Then Peter said, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here and let us make three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. This is not a smart thing. This reminds me of the guy who was stranded on a desert island. He was finally rescued. And when they rowed ashore, they noticed that there were three huts. And he goes, there's just one guy on this island. Why do you have three huts? And he goes, you see this first hut? That's where I live. You see this second hut? That's my church. You see this third hut? That's where I used to go to church until I got mad. (laughs) Yeah, people can be all by themselves and ditch church and make a new one. I'm going to suggest to you when he uses the term tabernacles, it's the Greek word skenos, tents or booths. Many of you understand about the Feast of Tabernacles and the. In the Jewish religious tradition to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, the Jews would leave their homes for a period of eight days and they they would basically sleep in these booths or tents. They would create these makeshift shelters because it became a type and a picture of the wilderness wandering but it also became a type and a picture of a future blessing an anticipation of the kingdom and it could very well that peter is just thinking hey look the kingdom is here jesus is glorified elijah and moses let's just stay on top of the mountain good thing or bad thing it's a bad thing because remember what jesus has already said i've got to go to jerusalem i will be arrested I will suffer, I will die, I will come back to life. Can't we have a different kind of Christianity? Let's have a Christianity where nobody gets hurt. Where nobody has to suffer, nobody has to sacrifice, nobody has to die. Let's go into the kingdom. Do not pass go. Do not collect two hundred dollars. Just let's do this. But once again, Peter finds himself saying stupid things. And Mark reveals it in verse six because he didn't know what to say, but they were greatly afraid. He's giving the real reason why he said that he's he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's terrified. Luke's gospel says that the disciples had been sleeping in Luke chapter 9, verse 32. All of a sudden they awaken and there is Jesus glorified. There is Elijah. There is Moses. They're talking. They're confused. They're afraid. And by the way, if you are confused and afraid, you should probably just keep your mouth shut. When you're confused and afraid, that's not the time to speak. Peter opens his mouth and he's hindering God's plan. He wants to stay and soak in the glory. But Jesus must go to the cross. And so must you. Because that's where your future resurrection lies. And that's where glory lies. You see, now all of a sudden you can understand the call and the cost of discipleship is taking place in a context of a future reward. It says in verse seven, a cloud gathered and overshadowed them. A cloud came and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, Agapitas, hear him. A cloud gathers, but this is no ordinary cloud. This is not like a Colorado cloud on the front range. I know, don't you love this place? It's sunny, 60 degrees, 70 degrees. Then it plummets to 2 degrees. (laughs) They're on the top of the mountain. And a cloud appears, but it's no ordinary cloud. This is what the Hebrews called Shechanah. Or some people mispronounce Shekinah. This is the glory cloud. This is the cloud that stayed in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. This is the cloud that descended upon the children of Israel in their wilderness wanderings. This was the pillar of fire. And this was the cloud of smoke. This was the very Presence, the expression, the visible expression of the presence of God and the voice in the cloud acknowledges that Jesus Christ is his beloved son. This is my beloved son. Hear him. The word hear. Akute. Listen, present tense imperative carries the idea of something ongoing, habitual, the implication being Listen to my son and keep listening. Listen, listen again. Why? Because sometimes we tend to forget, don't we? Just like regular children. Have you ever said to your child, didn't you hear what I said? Yes, mother. How could you just forget after 30 seconds? And then the Lord whispers in your ear, how could you forget? After one second. Thus far, Jesus has made demands. You might want to think of them as suggestions, but they are demands. In John 3, you must be born again. Not, hey, let me see if I can give you a helpful suggestion. What what do you think about being born again? You must be born again, you must repent. You must come to Jesus. you must believe in him. you must love him. Here, you must listen to him. In Mark's gospel earlier in chapter seven, Jesus said he called the people to him again in verse 14, and he said, "Hear me, all of you and understand." In Luke 8:18, 8, Jesus says, "I need you to take care how you listen." Why should anyone? Ever listen to Jesus. Why not listen to your rabbi? Why not listen to the pastor? Why not listen to the priest? Why not listen to the church? Why not listen to this or listen to that or listen to this? Why should anyone listen to Jesus? Do you remember in John chapter seven, verse 45, the religious leaders gather a bunch of Rent a cops, these are temple guards. They outfit them with shields and with swords, and they go, Okay, here's what we want you to do. We want you to find the malicious rabbi from Nazareth. We want you to arrest him, and we want you to bring him to us. So the, gr- the guards head out. They find Jesus, and Jesus is teaching. And they drop their guard. They lay down their sword. They begin to listen to Jesus. And as they're listening to Jesus, they're enthralled by what Jesus has to say. And then they pick up their shield and they pick up their sword. And they return to the religious leaders. <laughs> and they said, why didn't you arrest him? And they said, because no one ever spoke like this man before. No one's ever said what he's said. Jesus speaks and supernatural powers are silenced. Jesus speaks and his words contain eternal life. Jesus speaks and faith is awakened inside of the soul. Jesus speaks and the cloud disappears. Jesus speaks. How is it possible that there are people who cannot hear what Jesus has to say? Jesus gives the reason in John chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. The Bible teaches that whoever is of God hears the words of God. As a matter of fact, Jesus told the religious leaders there's two kinds of listeners. The non-listeners he describes in John chapter 8, verse 47. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you don't hear them is that you are not of God. There's a reason why your husband can't hear there's a reason why your wife can't hear there's a reason why your children can't hear there's a reason why your neighbors can't hear And so the voice from heaven says if you're going to listen to anyone listen to what my son has to say And look at verse eight. It says suddenly when they looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. I think it's significant that Moses and Elijah disappear. If Moses represents the law and Elijah, the fulfillment of all things that are written in the prophets, when the law disappears and the prophet disappears, guess what's left? Jesus is all that's left. And in him there is life. The writer of Hebrews says God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, he has spoken to us by his own dear son. But there's something inside of us. There's something malicious inside of us. There's something wicked and dark inside of us that demands a pope and demands a person. And demands a pastor. And demands principles. You know, religions have come and gone. Religions are in a constant argument. What is the final form of revelation? To the Muslims, it's Muhammad. To the Mormons, it's Joseph Smith and the subsequent prophets. To the various religious groups that prosper prosper under so-called new leadership. They come and they go and they rise and they fall. And they constantly claim to have a message... That they really don't have. Jesus told his own disciples. Everything that my father has told me I've told you. And then they're going to descend. The Mount of Transfiguration. But make no mistake about it. The final form of revelation is the Lord Jesus himself. It says in verse nine, now, as they came down the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things that they had seen till the son of man is risen from the dead. The journey down the mountain begins with a command. Tell no one and confusion in verse eleven. I don't understand why. The disciples asked Jesus why the religious leaders insist that Elijah has to return. But before we go there, back to verse nine. He commanded them that they should tell no one. Does it surprise you that God has secrets? And that sometimes he wants you to have secrets? By the way, this is the only secret and command in the Bible that's time sensitive. It will have a beginning, it will have a middle, and it will have an end. He commands them that they should tell no one the things that they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. What does that mean? You know what it means. After the suffering, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, are they free to tell everyone all things? The answer is yes. So why does he want them to keep it a secret right at this very moment? You know what my granny used to say? A secret is something that you tell one person at a time. (laughs) No, Grandma, that's not a secret. That's not what a secret is. Do you remember the agonizing and overriding misperception that's taking place? The disciples want a christianity without a cross they want a revolution without a revelation what happens if they go down from the mountain and say you'll never guess who we saw on the mountain it was moses and elijah is it possible that people could misunderstand what had just taken place And they, too, would once again reinforce the idea that Jesus does not go to the cross. He does not pass go. He does not collect $200, but he immediately occupies a throne. That's the idea. It says in verse 10, so they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead mean. That, that expression, kept, means seized. It means to take hold of something and then hold on tight. They continue to discuss. Think about the conversation. Peter, James, and John. Peter, what do you think? What do you think rising from the dead means? John, what do you think? What do you think rising from the dead means? James, what do you think? Is this a spiritual resurrection? Is this a spiritual resurrection like the Jehovah's Witnesses say? Where all of a sudden he, his body just becomes gases and he just sort of disseminates into the heavens? Is this a literal bodily resurrection where the body that dies is the body that comes back to life? What in the world is he talking about? And why is the master going to die only to rise again? C.S. Lewis wrote, if this thing happened, it was the central event in the history of the earth, unquote. If Jesus literally, physically, bodily rose from the dead, then every other event pales into comparison. Paul Little wrote, Jesus' supreme credentials to authenticate his claim to deity was his resurrection from the dead. Five times in the course of his life, he predicts he would die. He also predicts that he would die, and three days later, he would rise from the dead and appear to his disciples... But they still don't get it. They're still not understanding it. In verse 11, they said, well, why did the scribes say that Elijah must first come? The religious leaders, the scribes rightly pointed to the fact in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, predicting that Elijah would come. Do you know, in the, in the first century BC and the first century AD, the rabbis had a tradition that Elijah would come three days before the Messiah. And on the first day he would say, Shalom. The Messiah has come. Peace. The Messiah has come. Shalom. The Messiah has come. And then the second day he would say, Goodness, the Messiah has come. Goodness, the Messiah has come. Goodness, the Messiah has come. And then on the third day, Elijah would get up and he would say, Yeshua. Has come. Salvation has come. Yeshua has come. I think most of you know that Yeshua is the Hebrew name for Jesus. Salvation has come. Salvation has come. Jesus has come. Jesus has come. It is true. He says, indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. But remember what he says now, he goes, but how is it written concerning the son of man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Do you understand what's happening? Jesus is redirecting the focus of their attention because as they're trying to explain the coming kingdom in all of its glory, Jesus is gently reminding them that there is a stop off just briefly that the Messiah must suffer. Think for just a moment. Jesus is trying to remind them. You can't ignore and you can't pretend and you can't deny that the prophets predict that the Messiah will suffer and the Messiah will die. But remember, there are people who don't want a suffering Messiah and they don't want a dead Messiah. But Jesus reminds them that a suffering Messiah and a dead Messiah Becomes the prelude to a resurrected Messiah and a glorified Messiah. And so he says in verse 13, but I say to you that Elijah has also come and they did to him whatever they wished as it is written of him. And one since Elijah has come in what way, John, the Baptist came in the person and the power and the ministry of Elijah men treated him exactly the way they wanted to. They treated him just like they treated Elijah with dis. and with disdain and with contempt and they treated John the Baptist with contempt and they killed him and they'll treat the Messiah with contempt and they'll kill him. The real conflict doesn't lie in the coming kingdom. The real conflict lies in the fact that in order for the kingdom to come, The king must die and come back to life. So how will the disciples stay strong in the weeks ahead? By the way, in the next section, Jesus will deliver a boy who seems to be losing his fight with demons And later, there will be an affirmation of love both for sinners and for saints. And Jesus will once again speak of his suffering and death, but he will do so in the context of loving each other and then loving people who are outside of your comfort zone. And then he'll even talk about. A future punishment for the wicked. And the very real need. To love the lost. A sneak peek. Coming attractions. Here's the point. In order for you to understand surrender and suffering and salvation, you have to see it in the light of eternity. You have to know, you have to know, you have to know. That one day the veil will be completely torn away. And you will enter into eternity with Jesus forever. But we've got way more to do. Heavenly Father, we thank you, praise you, we glorify you. Lord, thanks for the sneak peek of coming attractions. And Lord, again, we pray that. When we find ourselves in the ordinary circumstances of our life, when things seem so empty and they seem so painful and they seem so ordinary, that, Lord, you want to fill us and that you want to encourage us and you want to remind us that glory is only one small tear Away. In Jesus' name, amen.